Yes. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Carlos Santana, a classic rock legend and 10-time Grammy Award winner, the pioneering performer who fused rock and Latin jazz with his soulful guitar stylings. He became a superstar in the 60s and 70s with songs like Black Magic Woman and Oye Como Va, then disappeared into relative obscurity only to explode back into the mainstream in the late 90s with a certain smash hit featuring Rob Thomas. But this story isn't about Carlos Santana. This story is about Deborah Santana, writer, entrepreneur, activist, daughter of blues legend Saunders King, one-time girlfriend of Sly Stone, and Carlos Santana's wife and partner for more than three decades. This story is about a girl. Deborah King was walking home from work when a honk blasted beside her, shaking her from her reverie. A big beige camper had pulled up and stopped right there in the street. Deborah was no stranger to having men catcall her, honk at her, hassle her. But this, this was something else. 
The man who now stood blocking the sidewalk in front of her wore furry brown boots topped with fringed yellow knickers. There was more fringe on his black leather jacket. He'd left the door of his two-tone camper wide open, engine running. Deborah's eyes settled on his face. It was Sly Stone. Who, he asked, a grin spreading across his devilish features, are you? Deborah knew who he was. Everyone knew Sly in the family stone. She just watched them a few Sundays ago on the Ed Sullivan show. Sly was cool, gifted, incredibly funky. He was magnetic. Do you live around here? He pressed her. You've got to go out with me. Deborah was determined to resist this brazen come on. She pushed past him. I don't think so. She refused to ride up the hill to her house, but allowed him her number. By the time she walked through her front door, the phone was already ringing. A velvety purr crackled through the phone line. This is Sly. Let's go out tonight. She wouldn't do it. But he did convince her to see him that weekend. Sly was so different from her. Self-assured in the way he spoke, acted, sparkled. He was over-the-top in every aspect, from his rare automobile, Accord Duesenberg, to his skin-tight leather. Deborah was captivated as they drove around together. His thick gold rings, his expensive clothing. At age 18, she'd never met another person like him. What do you do, he asked her. You're so beautiful. Are you a model? She laughed at the idea. No, she was not a model. Deborah worked for the phone company in San Francisco as a long-distance operator. She was going to college that fall, studying black history and English. When he rolled down his sock and offered her a joint stashed there, she didn't have any interest. Deborah didn't like the smell or the cough, let alone the sensation of being high. They drove around and talked, and Sly dropped her at home before midnight, per her dad's orders. He called again. They went out again. Deborah was fresh out of high school. She'd had crushes and boyfriends. Light years beyond that, there was Sly Stone. She was still a religious girl, still a virgin. She felt like a little clay doll, something beautiful but small and malleable in the hands of the 25-year-old Sly. He possessed her, touched her, held her close. She came when he called, stopped seeing her friends and family. With his vital embodiment of black pride, his talent and bold vision, Deborah thought he was just what she needed. She was what was considered mixed race. Her father, Saunders King, a well-known R&B guitarist, was black. Joe, her white mother, worked for the social security office to help support the family. Their home was full of music and love. But outside their walls, the civil rights battle was being waged, and it was not an easy time to be straddling two identities. Deborah and her older sister, Kitsan, were tormented by other kids. Your mama is white as day and your daddy is black as night, they spat at her. It left her feeling empty, not belonging to either world. Sly Stone seemed like someone who could help her find her place. Deborah started to spend all of her time at his house on Urbano Drive, not far from her own San Francisco home, where he lived with his parents, Mama and Casey. They'd spend hours in the bottom floor of the house, which Sly had to himself, listening as he wrote, kissing on his bed. She wasn't ready to sleep with him yet, but she could feel her resolve cracking. 
Not long after they met, Sly had a question. Did she want to go to New York with him? Come on, baby, we're going to play a show in upstate New York on a farm, some big festival. Deborah brainstormed ways she could tell her parents, half-truths and explanations that would unlock their approval. But she came up dry and went with the next best option. She didn't tell them at all. She took the bus to Planned Parenthood to pick up birth control for the first time. Kitsan promised she'd cover for her. Sly bought her a prepaid plane ticket. She left. Deborah didn't end up going on to Woodstock with the band. After two days, she called her parents and went home. But she was different after that trip. She tried LSD and weed for the first time, stopping just short of snorting the cocaine Sly passed around on a mirror during the band's hotel jam sessions. She'd lost her virginity. She'd gone window shopping in Greenwich Village and gotten Sly to buy her a pair of lime green platform shoes. She'd shattered her parents' trust. Kitsan picked her up from the airport and she rattled off the trip's events, certain that it had been worth the subterfuge. Her parents would get over it. I know who he is, her father told her. My buddies on the street are watching him. He's not worth the cement he stands on. He's nothing. Deborah didn't think he was nothing. She thought he was everything she'd been missing in her life. She aspired to his confidence, thought he could show her how to find it in herself. That fall, she was set to attend California State University Dominguez Hills. Sly didn't want her living on campus, so he had his secretary, Stevie, find her a one-bedroom apartment in Hollywood, a block below Sunset Boulevard. Sly had an office and a small staff in Hollywood, plus his manager, David Kapralik, lived there. He figured it wouldn't be long until he lived in L.A. himself. He paid Deborah's rent. It wasn't the kind of thing she could afford on her own and said she could drive his 1957 Thunderbird, purple with a paisley top, to get around town. Six weeks into her first semester, she was flying out to Cleveland to watch Sly perform. By the time finals approached, she was hardly going to school at all. Sly was recording in L.A., sleeping at her place if he wasn't at the studio. The drive to campus took her an hour and a half each way. And it didn't help that the Thunderbird, with its rebuilt engine, couldn't go faster than 55. Debbie was at the studio at 3 a.m. one morning, due in class at 8, and falling asleep in the control room when Sly offered her the rolled-up dollar bill. Just do a line, Debbie. It'll wake you up. Like that old T-bird, Deborah couldn't possibly keep up. Not if she wanted to stay on top of her coursework and be with Sly. She dropped out to move in with him in a rented mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Deborah packed up and cleaned her old apartment carefully, moving the last of her suitcases down to the Thunderbird. She headed back upstairs where she found Sly madly kicking the broom closet into shards. That bitch shouldn't have kept the deposit, he snarled, or told me to turn down my music. He left the shattered door and headed outside. Deborah was stunned. He was mad at the sweet old grandmother who owned the place. She'd only kept the deposit because they'd broken the lease. She knew Sly could have a temper. She'd seen the way he treated his friends and bandmates or other people on the road. But she'd never seen him like that when they were alone. He wasn't like that with her. This was not at all the cool avatar of self-actualization she thought she'd found. 
Deborah stood shaking in the empty apartment. A cold feeling crept into her chest. She had nowhere else to go. It was too late to turn back now. Gingerly clicking the door shut behind her, Deborah walked towards the car. Deborah walked into the control room of Wally Hyder Studios, where Sly and his engineer were adjusting bass levels. Sly stood up to greet her, then collapsed back in his chair. His eyes rolled back into his head. Sly! Deborah screamed. Freddie, something's wrong! She'd never been more afraid. They drove him to the hospital, where doctors told her that he was alive, but he had cocaine poisoning. They gave him tranquilizers to even him out. Deborah asked him to stop snorting coke, but Sly just couldn't do it. In fact, reasoning that doctors saved his life with tranquilizers once, he started using those too. Some doctor wrote him a script for Secondol, an addictive sedative hypnotic known on the street as Red Devils. After that, things started to unravel, fast. Deborah followed Sly into barbiturate twilight, numbing her disillusionment with Sly and her disappointment with herself. She knew she was wasting her life, squandering her willfulness. She just didn't know how to stop. Between the coke and the tranquilizer, she was eating once a day. She felt weak, hollowed out. She was skin and bones. And Sly was in worse shape. The light she'd first seen in him was snuffed out. Sly jumped at the sound. He and Deborah were in a cheap motel room in Fresno. Someone was at the door. Hamp Banks, his sister's husband, known as Bubba. The two of them slipped into the bathroom. After a while, a voice summoned. Bring me my bag, bitch. Was he talking to her? Deborah felt that same feeling of fear, of paralyzation. Faster than she could see what was happening, Sly exploded from the bathroom and was on top of her. He backhanded her so hard that his ring split her lip wide open. When I tell you to do something, you do it, woman, he sneered. Ham Banks is seeing me do worse to a woman for much less. After he came down, Sly promised her it would never happen again. But their love was already warped maybe broken. He'd gotten into PCP and didn't seem to care much about anything else, including her and his own band. He'd missed a deadline with the record company. What little music he had been working on was dark and airless. Try as she could to dampen her feelings with second all, Deborah was sad and scared. Then she missed a period. Sly promised that his cousin, Tony, a nurse, could take care of it. She'd done it before. Tony came to the house, walked to the closet, and grabbed a hanger, twisting the neck into a straight line. What are you going to use that for, Deborah asked. She'd never felt pain like this, and she prayed God would give her the strength she needed to get the hell out of there. The shattered apartment door, the backhand across the face, the abortion. Had it all gone down over the course of just a few months? Not long after, Sly was getting ready to go out for the night. He told her to stay in the bedroom. Some of the guys might be going in and out of the house. Deborah didn't stay in the bedroom. She was hungry, went down to the kitchen to make a snack. Sly descended on her. I told you to stay in the bedroom, he roared. 
Sly grabbed her by the arm, dragged her up to the bedroom, and pinned her down in a heated fury, beating her about the face. The next morning, while Sly slept, she quietly packed her shirts, her bell-bottoms, her childhood Bible. She combed her hair and slid a C-note out of Sly's satchel. She grabbed one other book, a copy of Be Here Now by spiritual teacher Ram Das, a gift from Sly's manager David, and waited outside for a taxi to take her to LAX. She went home. Not long after Deborah left Sly, she got a call from Stevie. Sly had lost it, stoned all the time, missing shows. Bubba was living in the Bel Air house. They started carrying guns. She had gotten out just in time. I called because I'm working in the city at Black Expo, Stevie told her. They were planning a summit of black entertainers. I need a receptionist. Are you interested? A resounding yes from Deborah. She was accepted to San Francisco State's creative writing program in the fall of 1972. Sometimes she still drove by Mama and Casey's house looking for some sign of Sly. In July, she and Kitsan went to a Tower of Power concert. As the band launched into You've Got to Funkifies, a mysterious guitarist stepped out onto the stage, working the audience to a frenzy with the solo. Who is that? Carlos Santana. Carlos had the same undeniable charisma that had drawn her to Sly. She was understandably wary of musicians, but he really wanted to meet Deborah. Her friend Lynn gave him her number, and he called to see if she'd join him at the Azteca show that was coming up. He'd leave her name on the guest list. She went. He called again the next night to ask her out. He picked her up from the Black Expo office, wearing snakeskin boots and a tattered tee. Carlos may have had charisma like Sly, but, well, the guy drove a hatchback Volvo. Still, Deborah hesitated when he asked if she'd like to come see his house. Her friends had promised her Carlos was the nicest guy in the business, but in her experience, that was a low bar. I'm on a search for myself, Carlos, she told him frankly. It's important that I think my actions through. God has to be in my life. Mine too, he told her. My band broke up because I started meditating. Carlos told her more about the breakup. The inflated egos, the feeling of living a fake life. His past was drugs and parties. He and Deborah shared a desire for truth, God, light, something real. They were each looking for meaning. I've been fasting and praying for a teacher to help me, he told her. He started calling every night. She told him about her relationship with Sly, the drugs, the abuse. They talked about their hopes and dreams and spirituality. She started meeting Carlos after practice on Upper Fillmore Street, spending more and more time at his home. Deborah had seen the way Sly and his band treated women as groupies and hanger-ons, disposable and useless. With Carlos, she knew the music came before anything else. It was him and his guitar. But she came next. She was learning to assert herself, and she tried to keep her identity central. She was back in school. Carlos was recording and touring. John McLaughlin wants me to record with him, Carlos told her one afternoon. He's a magnificent guitarist, a musical giant. He played with Miles. John's band was called the Mahavishnu Orchestra. 
As Carlos put on a record of theirs, Deborah scanned the back of the vinyl where a poem was printed. It was written by someone named Sri Chinmoy. Deborah's mother warned her about throwing her whole self into a man again. She was 21 now. It was time to take her studies seriously. But when Carlos asked her to fly to New York and meet John with him, she decided it couldn't hurt to ask her professors for a little break. On the East Coast once again, Deborah met John, who preferred his disciple name, Mahavishnu, and his wife, who went by Mahalakshmi. Their plane had hardly touched down before the two were telling Deborah and Carlos a bit more about that poet, Sri Chinmoy, who, as it happened, was their spiritual guru. I've been looking for a guru, Carlos replied. That's just one of those things musicians said in the 70s. But Deborah had also been looking for a guru. She just hadn't realized it. She woke up the next morning to a call from Mahalakshmi. Sri Chinmoy had invited her and Carlos to a meditation at the United Nations. Could they make it? They joined 40-odd disciples, men dressed in the requisite white, women in their flower-printed saris, and sat, controlling their breathing, sitting in silence, and trying to stop the thoughts racing through their heads. I felt something divine in that meditation. Did you? Carlos asked her afterwards. She responded, I saw light. For the first time, I saw the bliss we've read about in meditation books. Later that evening, she and Carlos accepted another invitation from the guru, this time to attend meditation at his house. Incense curled through the air as the guru's disciples meditated, then sat with him, asking questions about his thoughts on everything from drugs to Christianity. Carlos asked Sri Chinmoy, I have followed Jesus and I'm wondering if meditation with you is okay with him. As the disciples listened, Sri Chinmoy told him that God and Guru could go hand in hand. What he offered his followers wasn't a religion so much as a path, a means to an enlightened end. We are working together to give you the vision of God, he said. Deborah felt like his pupil, sitting at his feet as he fielded questions. Actually, it wasn't unlike being with Sly, who would surround himself with people in the dimly lit studio, presenting himself a leader, a teacher. Hell, he'd even light candles while he did it. She pushed this thought out of her mind. This was the message she needed. She could be cleansed. She could separate from her past. She didn't have to look back. Eventually, she and Carlos decided they would join up and follow Sri Chinmoy. Carlos cut off his beautiful hair and started wearing white. Deborah got a sari and dropped out of school, again. Carlos would choose the name of a Sri Chinmoy poem, Love, Devotion, and Surrender, for his next record. It was November 1972. They'd known each other roughly five months. Despite the work she'd done trying to establish her own identity, Deborah could feel herself disappearing, being engulfed by her new spirituality. She felt like she was seeing it happen to someone else. But the bad memories were being pushed further back, too, like they no longer belonged to her. She felt more grounded, but doubt crept into her calm resolve. Deborah would watch Carlos wield his guitar on stage, his dark eyes flashing at the crowd as he worked them into a frenzied trance. 
Could Carlos love me, one person, when he is adored by thousands, she wondered. Should I allow myself to care so deeply for him when there is a great chance I could be hurt? While he toured Europe, Deborah stayed behind in New York City, working with other disciples at Mahalakshmi's restaurant. Meditation, restaurant, meditation, sleep. When they returned home to San Francisco, they started going to meditation at Sri Chen Moy's center there. Still, Deborah worried whether her love could hold a candle to the outpouring of devotion others displayed for Carlos. This was the height of the groupie heyday, and women threw themselves at him. Deborah would answer the phone only to hear breathing for a moment before the caller hung up. Sri Chinmoy's new prized disciples continued flying back and forth between the coasts. While Carlos was on tour, Kitsan started coming to meditations, eventually joining as a disciple herself. When they were summoned again to New York by Sri Chinmoy, he called Carlos aside to ask him a few questions. Did he love Deborah? Yes. Then why weren't they married? Carlos told her later, He said that you are the one who can help me make the fastest spiritual progress. She felt herself flush. Do you want to marry me for me or because the guru said you should? Carlos promised her it was the former. They were married on April 20th, 1973 by her uncle at his house in Oakland. It was a small ceremony of friends and family. Carlos left the reception early to go to a band practice that night. The next week, she took her sister and her mom to New York for a wedding ceremony with Sri Chinmoy, where the family saw for the first time the guru and his disciples. When they returned, her parents wanted to have a talk. What does this guru teach, Saunders wanted to know. She explained that she was on a search for enlightenment, but it didn't undo her love of God. She talked about the warmth and light she felt in the guru's presence, how she was growing spiritually under his guidance. She couldn't hear the truth in her parents' warning. Just because someone says they're a guru doesn't mean shit. Or, as her father more eloquently put it, God is everywhere, but you have to watch the messenger. Sri Chinmoy's next directive was for Deborah and Kitsan to open a restaurant of their own in San Francisco. He told them it would be their premier divine enterprise for the West Coast. Deborah found a space at the corner of Church and Market Street. Dipti Nivas, the abode of light, opened in the fall of 73, and by the next year it was a hit, lauded by a columnist in the San Francisco Examiner. Deborah and Kitsan did everything at the restaurant from prep work to cleaning to finance. If I were Carlos Santana's wife, I wouldn't work here, she'd hear customers say. But Deborah didn't mind. She liked the hard work, felt fulfillment and godliness in nourishing people's souls and bodies. She was always busy, looking over the restaurant as she took over more of Carlos's scheduling and finances. Deborah wanted to have kids, but it was well established that their guru saw children as an obstacle to enlightenment. Carlos was away on tour most of the time anyway. Deborah would spend a week with him here and there, trading 10-hour shifts for canopy beds and champagne. Even when he was home, their schedules served to separate them. 
Deborah would work all day, returning home while Carlos was practicing or recording late into the morning hours. In 1976, when she became pregnant for the second time, she called her spiritual guide. She hoped she would receive Sri Chinmoy's blessing and guidance. Instead, he told her, Do not worry, dear one. The soul has not yet entered your body. You can have an abortion. Deborah was devastated, and it sounded wrong, but she trusted him. She scheduled the abortion for a time she knew Carlos would be in L.A. They were seeing less and less of each other. Carlos had started going out to the clubs at night. She kept the secret even as it ate away at her. Then came the summer evening in 1978 when they were out to dinner, and a young woman approached Deborah. I want you to have this, she said, handing her a bracelet. She was gazing at Carlos. He quickly ushered her away, but Deborah felt her world crack open. He'd been having an affair. Deborah burst from the restaurant, gasping for air. All of her simmering insecurity came to the surface. On the silent drive home, watching Southern California flash by her window, she poured over their time together. What was it she lacked? Did she do something wrong? This was her relationship with Sly all over again, but then it wasn't at all. Sly had been a pimp. Carlos was her rock. How could this be happening? Words from their last exchange rang in her ears. This was nothing. I love you. Love is one thing. Fidelity is another. As Carlos slept, she went to the balcony and tossed her wedding band into the forest below. Deborah channeled her emotional agony into a physical one. She started training to run the New York Marathon. She moved in with Kitsan, and training became her solace, a place to spend hours separated with her thoughts. Running was its own kind of meditation, and it reminded her of her strength, her power. That year, Deborah finished the New York Marathon. Carlos was there, waiting for her at the finish line. It wasn't long before Deborah had felt ready to take him back. He told her it was the center he'd been running from, not her. She told him about the pregnancy and the abortion, and she told him she was ready to have children. Sri Chinmoy says that having a family will lessen our dedication to the spiritual life, she told her husband. I think he fears that having children will expose us to a higher love. After nine years of meditation, Deborah and Carlos severed their relationship with their guru. Deborah went back to school again. She volunteered at a preschool. She took over the Santana Band fan club, investing in a computer, creating a database with the name and address of every member. The process took weeks. They had their first baby, Salvador, followed not long after by a second, Stella. Deborah eventually became COO of the Santana Band Corporation, learning the ins and outs, staying up long into the night. She discovered they'd been hemorrhaging money and she cleaned house, shedding useless personnel and expenses. Again, she put in 12-hour days. This was a job and a lot more to Deborah. It was her family's livelihood, their success, their future. She committed, as always, with her whole heart. 
which made it all the more devastating when, during one such marathon workday, she found photos of Carlos and three beautiful, lithe women while she cleaned out his office. The pictures unnerved her, and she realized something about his life on the road wasn't quite right. She sealed the photos in an envelope and mailed them with a letter telling him what she'd found, how she felt. Then she started looking for a new house where she could live with her, now three, children. Carlos trotted out that old classic. He loved her. Those women were purely for pleasure, for physical release. She guessed it wasn't the center he was running from after all. They went to therapy together to try to work it out. Deborah learned about the sexual abuse he'd suffered as a child in Tijuana, and they talked about their different understandings of love. I love your family and your standards, he promised her. I want to live up to them. Around the same time, Deborah enrolled in an autobiographical writing course. This was better than therapy, better than meditation. She started unearthing things she'd buried so far inside of her that even she didn't know them. Feelings about Sly, Sri Chinmoy, Carlos. The myriad ways men had hurt and let her down. The sacrifices she'd made to keep her relationships from falling apart. She'd looked to spiritual leaders for enlightenment, but it was writing her truth that opened her heart to the truths she tucked away. Writing opened her relationship with her family and with herself. She became something of a guru herself, leading her children in meditation, telling them, you house the truth of God's essence inside yourselves. All that a guru can offer your soul is a guidebook to the trail of enlightenment. With Deborah overseeing the business side, Carlos mounted a surprise comeback with the 1999 record Supernatural. The single Smooth, featuring Matchbox 20's Rob Thomas, would become his first number one, staying on top for 12 weeks. The album went platinum that year, with 10 Grammy nominations. Deborah published her memoir, Space Between the Stars, in 2005. She held nothing back. The abortions, the drugs, the cruelty, crooked gurus, dreams postponed, and the fact that powerful men, even the ones we idolize, whose music we love, can let you down. Two years later, as if to punctuate this point, Carlos and Deborah Santana's marriage, known as one of the most enduring in the music business, came to an end. Citing irreconcilable differences, she filed for divorce. Of course, she never stopped throwing herself into her work. She runs a nonprofit, the Do A Little Foundation, that serves women and girls, because the balance of power in the world still lies in the hands of men who often bypass or ignore the skills, intelligence, compassion, love, and grace of the female gender. She's produced five documentary shorts, and she edited an anthology of essays by women of color on their experiences in the 21st century. Carlos was remarried in 2010 to drummer Cindy Blackman. He still tours and records and is one of the rare members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to be inducted as both an individual and a member of a group. But this story isn't about Carlos Santana. This is about Deborah King, who spent her life searching for her true self, but eventually realized that identity is forged and not found. This story, like so many others that deserve to be told, is about a girl. 
About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by Emily Castle. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com.